1: The latest. Today, we analyse the heavy fighting in Robotyne as Ukrainian forces advance. We discuss Russian tank tactics and explore how the West smashed Russia's deep cover spy networks. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships
3: to finally reward you with
1: victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war.
2: Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 22nd of August, one year and 179 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, Russia Correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva, and former tank commander and Telegraph contributor Hamish de Bratton-Gordon. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine.
4: Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's go down south first of all. Heavy fighting is continuing around Robertina. So Ukraine is trying to consolidate the position there and push round to the east. It looks like the town of Vibova, which is about 7km to the east, is uh, is under pressure now by Ukrainian forces. So it looks like they're trying to squeeze around to the east and and reinforce what's happening down there. It's thought that some of the, the brigades operating down there are using some of the new Western-supplied equipment. Ukraine's armed forces said in a statement, soldiers of the 47th Separate Mechanised Brigade entered the village of Robertina. Uh, medics of the 47th separate mechanized brigade examined civilians and gave them an opportunity to call their relatives and you'll find that footage on social media out of the um, out of the area posted by Ukrainian MOD and uh, and and others it shows Ukrainian troops interestingly in a Bradley US supplied Bradley infantry fighting vehicle uh, moving moving in and um, and taking civilians away. It's thought that that brigade is also using Finnish Leopard 2R mine-clearing vehicles, so a modification of the Leopard 2 or the Leopard chassis, the Leopard tank, but designed for mine-clearing. And ISW, Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank, says that Ukrainian attacks on Robertina are tactically significant because of Ukrainian advance in that area, May allow their forces to begin operating past the densest Russian minefields. Their words. Now, I thought the the main line of the th- we think three lines of defence, but I thought the main line was further south. But if ISW is saying that they that they may be able to get past the the most dense area of Russian minefields, that is that is significant, and they'd have I think they'd be have better access to satellite technology than me. So let's keep our eyes on on there. Separately, Ukrainian MOD reporting today that a Russian unit from the from Russia's region of Buryatia, so this is in the far east of Russia, it basically nestles around the eastern shore of Lake Baikal, that's north of Mongolia, so right out in the east. This unit had moved into Tokmak, significant town about 40 k's north of uh, Melitopol on the Zaporizhia axis, so axis, sorry, where we've just been talking about, saying so, this unit has gone into to uh, Melitopol to check residents for documents showing they have the right to live in their homes and they are reporting that if no residency registration documents are found, Russian forces will confiscate the property. Now, let's move around a little bit further to the to the east, in, in the area of uh, Bakhmut. So, Russian forces have attempted to push back in the vicinity of Kleshkiva. So, this is a high ground about 2 k south of Bakhmut. They were unsuccessful, and there's lots of shelling continuing. Ukraine MOD said that they had used cluster munitions on Russian armed forces, uh, Russian vehicles. These are the um, the dual-purpose improved conventional munitions. The very Natalie titled that scatter small submunitions with shaped charges. So although the submunitions are are very small, about the size of a I don't know like a, a, a can that you can of soup or something that you'd be able to hold. It's got the shaped charge in it, which which is, so it's not just explosive. It directs the jet normally of copper directs that jet at hypersonic speed and that just by kinetic energy can bore through armor so these shape charges are um, are very are very effective they they've got to land on the on the thing uh, on the vehicle to 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 have a to have the the the, the most effects but uh, but they are very um very effective and obviously a large number of them now, a similar situation, uh, slightly or just down in the um, in that area, slightly further south around Stary and essentially across the whole of the southern front, Russia is attempting to regain the the, the losses it's made recently, but largely shelling heavily, heavily you know, led by artillery, but with no with no success. Further to the north around Liman, that seems to be getting more attention from Russian air power, possibly as a result of ukraine concentrating air defense assets down south so maybe russia feel that, that they would be better suited with it with um using their aircraft more safely up north uh, or maybe the the standard the quality of the troops up there which we think are largely conscripts is not as good as what they've got down south but anyway it seems to be it seems to be a bit of a divide next so last night russia says it shot down four, what they're saying is Ukrainian drones over, over its territory in Moscow and the Bryansk areas. Bryansk is much further south, southwest of Moscow. It's about 100 Ks just northeast of, of the Ukrainian-Belarusian border, that little triangle there. They said, uh, so four, four drones there and two more apparently destroyed around 11pm local Moscow time over the Black Sea up on the coast near near Odessa, 25 miles northwest of, uh, of Crimea. Now, Sticking with drones, yesterday we talked about the strike at the weekend at the Solsky Two Airbase in Novgorod um, Oblast. So this is this is 650 k's away from from Ukraine's border. Now in that attack, a Russian Tu-22M3 backfire medium bomber was almost certainly destroyed. The footage suggests, if the footage is accurate, and, and I think it is. It, it's, posted by a number of reliable sources i mean nothing's coming out of that fireball that's going to be uh, uh, able to be used again um, so we think a- at least one bomber almost certainly destroyed now the russian defense ministry said that there was a copter style uncrewed aerial vehicle uav copter style uav was responsible for the attack and today's british defense intelligence update says that if true that adds weight to the assessment that some drone attacks against Russian military targets are being launched from inside Russian territory because copter UAVs are unlikely to have the range to reach Solsky 2 from outside Russia. Now, we've seen similar suggestions before. You remember that put down as a drone strike, but still not entirely sure what it was that hit the Kremlin last, was it last year, earlier this year? Earlier this year, I think. But that is, is very unlikely... That, that thing the size of it could have come um, from from outside the border and there are suggestions that it, these are these are um, partisans inside Russia but no more no more knowledge about that at the moment so the MOD the defense intelligence update just finished off by saying Russia has used these bombers the Tupolev backfire bombers to launch the notoriously inaccurate AS-4 Kitchen heavy anti-ship missile against Ukraine. And you may remember early in the war, they were part of the intense bombardment of Mariupol using unguided bombs. This is at least the third successful attack on airfields of these long, of this bomber fleet, the long-range uh, bomb fleet. And again, it raises questions about Russia's ability to protect strategic locations deep inside the country. That's the, that's MOD's words, but I, I agree with that. Um, And I'll take a little pause there.
1: Thanks very much for that, Dom. Francis, can I go to you? You've been looking at some of the diplomatic and political updates around the world. Where would you like to start?
2: Well, thank you, David. A very significant day in the political realm today with the start of the BRICS summit in South Africa. The grouping of world economies, of course, often seen as a rival to the G7, namely Brazil, Russia, India, China and now South Africa. As a reminder, the term BRIC emerged in 2001 to herald the rise of these fast-growing economies poised to be collectively dominant by 2050, or at least as was believed at the time. It wasn't birthed as a sort of bureaucratic entity, but as a clarion call to investors. And it's evolved over time since 2009. A gradual shift has occurred as they've coalesced into a tighter geopolitical coalition. Their leaders convene annually in formal gatherings, harmonising multilateral strategies, etc. The most recent summit held in July 2022 was hosted by China. Very significant, of course. And this consortium now considered really a primary geopolitical contender rivals the G7 Assembly of Advanced Economies. This year's meeting coincides significantly with events obviously around the world. On the agenda are plans to bolster the emerging market block of BRICS and diversify from dependency on the US dollar. Ahead head of summit negotiations centred around Beijing's effort to amplify the forum's significance. Chinese leader Xi Jinping engaging in talks with South African President Cyril Ramaphosa during his state visit a few weeks ago, of course, laying the groundwork for this. attending as well are Brazil's president and the Indian prime minister. Uh, the latter governments have, we understand, expressed reservations regarding the terms of BRIC's expansion, fearing a compromise in their influence within the coalition and further validation of China's leadership in the developing world. Now, as we've discussed on the podcast, recent scrutiny has fallen on the South African administration's implicit endorsement of Putin's war, hosting, of course, military exercises and Russian vessels in their ports. Notably, this scrutiny has intensified following the imposition of sanctions on Putin. Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, takes Putin's place at the summit due to legal concerns in South Africa related to Putin's indictment by the International Criminal Court for war crimes in Ukraine. And that just exemplifies the significant political implications of that ruling. People at the time said, oh, it won't change anything. But certainly within the BRICS context, within the context of South Africa, it has. And so it did matter. Nevertheless, the focus remains broader than Ukraine and Russia, centering primarily on China, as I say. For Beijing... The BRICS summit serves as a potent geopolitical instrument. Over the past weekend, President Biden convened with Japanese and South Korean leaders at Camp David, solidifying a triateral coalition on China's periphery. And China's state media, uh, media, forgive me, editorialized this move as a frantic endeavor by the United States to uphold its influence in the world. And in response, Xi Jinping undertakes what will be his second foreign trip this year to South Africa, aiming evidently to promote the BRICS alliance as a blueprint for an alternative global order, emphasizing China's pivotal role. And as such, Chinese authorities are expressing an eagerness to broaden the alliance into a potentially more extensive acronym. Countries such as Indonesia, Nigeria, Argentina and Saudi Arabia express interest in participation. About sixty countries are going to be present there for this summit. And this would, of course, serve as a vehicle to advance its own ideology for China if it expands. China's ambassador, to South Africa, asserts that the bloc constitutes a pivotal platform collaboration among emerging and developing nations and serving as a bedrock in their terms for international equity and justice, which, of course, tallies with Beijing's official stance on these matters. All I would add is they might think that I couldn't possibly comment. In other news, staying in Africa, our old friend Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, has posted his first video address since the mutiny in June. And he's also in Africa, though we're unable to determine exactly where as yet. He's wearing a camo uniform, a floppy sun hat and holding a gun. Sounds rather like Dom's summer holiday. And there's also a truck behind him. In the video, he says Wagner is exploring for minerals as well as fighting Islamist militants and other criminals. He adds, and I'll quote from him, the temperature is 50 plus, everything as we like. Wagner PMC conducts reconnaissance and search actions, makes Russia even greater on all continents and Africa even more free. Justice and happiness for the African people. No word, of course, about the assets the group boasts and which it is evidently seeking to hold on to following its debacle back in June. Wagner once received an entire forest from the Central African Republic in exchange for security guarantees, primarily for timber export purposes. It also operates gold and diamond mines there and in and around Sudan. From the Central African Republic alone, around 45 tonnes of gold valued at $2 billion were extracted by the group. The New York Times reported that the Wagner Group collaborated with Sudanese military authorities to illicitly transport large quantities of gold out of Sudan as well, aiding in financing Russia's war efforts in Ukraine. And according to the United States Institute of Peace, Wagner has diversified business interests spanning various African nations as we've reported on in the past. So Mali, Cameroon, Mozambique, Madagascar, Libya, Sudan, Burkina Faso, generating millions of euros in profit. Fundamentally, many would argue that the realities of Wagner's activities in Africa are as an exploiter and an enabler of tyranny and exploitation masquerading as benevolence the very charge, of course, they make of 19th century colonial powers whose legacy they exploit to gain political leverage on the continent. But turning to the political sphere of Ukraine now, a very interesting development in light of our discussion last week around Greece's hesitancy delivering military assistance to Ukraine. President Zelensky landed in the country yesterday and the first signs are promising for him. Greece has formally become a part of this aviation coalition that Don was discussing earlier in the week and at the end of last week, taking on the pivotal role of training pilots to fly F-16s. Greece is also committed to bolstering Ukraine's security by shaping a new military aid package and contributing to the safeguarding of Ukraine's vital Black Sea corridor. We also understand that a forward-thinking proposal was put forward and emerged during the discussions to actively contribute to Ukraine's recovery process, potentially by having guardianship over the restoration of Odessa. We don't know anything more on that at this stage no word yet on all of greece's leopard tanks the most in europe in fact approximately 350 leopard 2s and 500 leopard 1s but nonetheless something has evidently shifted zelensky also said he had an open honest and fruitful talk with the serbian president on his visit to athens writing on telegram that he had a good conversation on respect for the un charter and the inviability of borders on our nation's shared future in the common European home, and on our developing relations. That is in our mutual interest. But the fact remains, at home, Zelensky does face considerable challenges in the recruitment space. The BBC has done a long read today called Ukraine War, The Men Who Don't Want to Fight, which examines Ukraine's increasing struggling to meet its demand for soldiers. It says... Volunteers aren't enough. The country constantly needs to replace the tens of thousands who've been killed or injured. Many more are just exhausted after 18 months fighting off Russia's full-scale invasion. Some men don't want to fight. Thousands have left the country, sometimes after bribing officials, and others are finding ways of dodging recruitment officers, who in turn have been accused of heavy-handed tactics. As we've reported, the way Kyiv conscripts men has come under increasing scrutiny recently, following widespread allegations involving officers in the system, including issues like bride taking. as I say. Zelensky dismissed all regional heads of recruitment in Ukraine a few weeks ago. And as the author of the BBC article writes... Ukraine has defied all expectations in its defence against Russia's full-scale invasion. Moscow's focus has been forced to shift from taking the whole country to trying to hang on to just a fifth of it. But Ukraine is having to do its own recalibrations, not just with its own counter-offensive, but which is bringing in slower progress than many hoped, but also with how it motivates its own citizens to fight. Now, there is more to be said on that issue, namely how Ukrainian recruitment initiatives have evolved over the course of the war. But I think it's best we return to that in a future episode, David.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Natalia Vasileva, can I come to you? You've written uh, an absolutely fascinating piece for The Telegraph's website. Um, It's called How the West Smashed Russia's Deep Cover Spy Networks. So you've been looking at the the espionage war, essentially, in in Europe uh, and around the world. It's a huge subject. Where would you like to start?
3: Hi, David, and hi, everyone. Yes, my piece was basically inspired by a big spy story that broke in the UK last week, which was about the arrest of three something 40-something a Bulgarian nationalists n- national who were arrested in London for... Spying for Russia, their arrest and public, public outing by Scotland is quite unusual. Typically, those arrests either don't get reported or they just don't happen very often. And it just made me look at what's been happening with Russia's spy network. And there have actually been really significant developments, which I think have been completely overlooked in the past months, because obviously there was so much going on in, in, in uh, Ukraine as, as such on the front line and in Russia. So I was looking at several things. I was looking at the expulsion of Russian diplomats who were suspected of working as Russia's intelligence agents. And I was looking at illegals, so as we call them, so deep cover Russian agents who operate abroad and they assume different identities. And those um, those people take years to train and so they're quite valuable to the security services. So looking at the Russian diplomats, I was quite shocked to discover that the, the sheer number of expelled diplomats since the war started was actually twice as many as the whole of the previous 20 years. So as far as I could count, uh, they have been 705 Russian diplomats expelled since the war started, and there was something like 400 uh, Russian diplomats expelled between 2001 and 2021 again it's it's clear that some of them have been suspected of working as undeclared Russian agents obviously some of them were not spies at all I think that's quite clear those expulsions have actually had a major a major impact on the operations of Russian intelligence you know if you look at its, it's um, separate countries like some of them uh, Russian embassies that some of them have been completely gutted out uh, Poland for example expelled 45 people since the war started and uh, Bulgaria Bulgaria has kicked out 83. What happens with those diplomats is that they cannot be reassigned to another EU country once they're barred and expelled from another EU country. So what what happens with those expulsions? Obviously, they don't generate the same headlines as the arrest of those three suspected Russian spies, the Bulgarian nationalists. There's no cloak and dagger aura behind them. But as I spoke to Russian security services experts, they point out that those people are often the backbone of the intelligence operations. They are based in uh, all of those foreign countries. They ensure continuity. Their role often is not to be spies themselves, is not to procure information, but rather identify, find, and hire local agents and, and running those networks. And obviously for those diplomats, if we call them this way, they are based in, um, in the country for a number of years, then someone else comes along and their job is to sort of hang, hand over those agents to someone else. So when those expulsions happened, that uh, from as as far as we can see, that was quite an earthquake of an event for the Russian spy network because suddenly all of those local agents, they don't have their usual go-to contacts. It's either that the Russian handlers are not there or, or that they were not they were not able to sort of do, do do proper handover to their successors. So that network is is clearly in in disarray. And those people working at the Russian embassies, again, as I've said, a lot of them clearly were not doing the cloak and dagger, exciting, audacious acts. But they were the infrastructure of the spy network, and they are obviously are missing. This
1: um, Natalia, just very quickly, I mean, it's an extraordinary story you've reported on. What's the Russian reaction to this been? I mean, in the piece. You write that the Russian government uh, does not seem to be bothered with, 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 with this. Can you talk a little bit about Yevgeny Umarenko? He's quite a good example of what you're talking about.
3: Yeah, as I've said, those those expulsions expulsions have been reported in quite a matter of fact manner by both sides. You know, it doesn't generate more than a one hundred word news story. But when you look closer, you can see that some of those diplomats uh, tend to resurface elsewhere. For example, if you look at Russia's embassy in Belgrade, it has received a quite significant number of arrivals. So while other embassies, especially in the EU, are getting gutted, gutted out, Russia's embassy in Belgrade. Serbia, which is not a EU member, are actually expanding. And so, yeah, we see that those suspected agents uh, can often get recycled. And I think one of the best examples is the case of Yevgeny Mirenka, who was basically caught red-handed in Sweden in 2019. He was a diplomat at the Russian embassy in Stockholm he was detained. He was accused of trying to steal industry secrets from Sweden's car giants Volvo in Scania and he was expelled over over that. And uh, when my colleagues from Swedish public broadcaster SVT was trying to track Umirenka down like to see what happened to him later, just earlier this year, they found him at the Russian embassy in Seoul. His name is posted on the website. It's publicly available. They called up the embassy and the embassy basically confirmed that he still works there so obviously there's this idea that russia is not bothered that some of its agents might be caught red-handed or identified and obviously there are other roles for them to play and if i might i would like also to talk about a second aspect of the story which is illegals if we have time
1: please please natalia yes lots of time
3: yeah you right so so obviously yeah as, as i as i've mentioned the diplomats they are they are typically tasked with routine, unexcited tasks for Russian intelligence network, and they are often involved in running illegals, which is the most sensitive part of the spying profession, if I might call it this way. We're talking about Russian nationals who have worked for years, if not decades, to cultivate a different identity. They end up with false ID papers. They pose as Brazilians, Argentinians, Chileans, you name it. And they, they would settle in third countries. And uh, the idea is to delete the trace, delete any links to Russia and basically create a new identity from, from scratch so that they would not be suspected of, of spying for Russia. And uh, the exposure of those illegals are quite, quite rare. There was one case in 2010 when I think a dozen of Russian illegals were uh, deported from the United States. It was basically the, the biggest spy scandal since the end of the Cold War, and we haven't seen anything, uh, anything at on the, on that scale since until the war started. And as far as I could count from the publicly reported cases, there have been at least six Russian. Illegals, so six Russian nationals living under fake identities and who are believed to be spying for the military intelligence, who've been arrested, either either arrested or simply exposed for their activities, which is an increasing incredibly high number, and a lot of those stories are absolutely worth of the most exciting Hollywood thriller. There was a couple in the Netherlands, sorry, there was a couple in Slovenia, apparently lived there for years. Posters there's Argentinians, run a gallery. They were arrested. In the Netherlands, there was a Russian agent with a very intricate identity history. He, he was posing as a Brazilian postgraduate student and uh, apparently he was plotting to infiltrate the International Criminal Court in, in The Hague, which is obviously quite important given the fact that now President Vladimir Putin and and another Russian officials are potentially facing charges in The Hague and there's an arrest warrant in their name. So it's quite, I mean, obviously those illegals are out there operating and everyone knows that. And uh, from what I could understand, typically the the counterintelligence agencies in uh, those countries in Europe, including the UK, are aware of the presence of those people and their natural instinct would be not to arrest them and not to expose them and shame and name them them, but rather keep tabs on them, follow them, see what they're up to, who are they interacting. And in that sense, the, the, those arrests are quite extraordinary. And what they could show is that just how worried the European intelligence community is about potential disruptive acts by Russian agents, including those, those people, that they would actually go and expose them rather than cultivate them as a source maybe trying to recruit them so those um, those arrests are, are quite are quite unusual they also show higher level of cooperation between different intelligent networks intelligence, intelligence agencies in Europe. If you talk about recent arrests, there was an arrest in Slovenia, there was something in Greece. Some of those smaller European countries don't always have the same capacity for intelligence work as the US or the UK. So what we have seen since the 2018 poisoning of former KGB agent Sergei Skripal is that there's been much more intelligence sharing within Europe. And it's quite likely that some of those arrests in, in Slovenia and in the Netherlands and elsewhere they have been done thanks to tip-offs of a, or any information from MI6 or the CIA and also there's there's another line that of research that I've been looking at so is unusual and unlike unlikely ac- uh, actors and agents that Russia might uh, want to recruit and I just remembered about the recent also, very cinematic case of a son of a Russian government governor who was arrested earlier this year for trying to smuggle sensitive American military technology abroad. Apparently, he's a businessman and he's um, he's lived abroad for quite a while. So he was arrested in Italy and um, he was under house arrest for a few months. Then there was an extradition hearing, and an Italian court has approved that extradition. So he was his extradition was quite imminent, and just at that time, Artem Us, which is the name of the son of the Russian governor, mysteriously disappeared from his mansion, and in Milan, only to resurface in Russia a few days later. Apparently, they were Russian intelligence agents who helped him to exp- escape from house arrest smuggled him into Serbia and whisked him away to Moscow. And we haven't seen anyone like that engaged, at least we don't know of anyone like that engaged in spionage efforts before. Clearly, Artomus is, is not someone who would have been trained and cultivated by the Russian intelligence. But to many intelligence experts I spoke to that uh, speaks to the fact that right now, when the Russian spy network has been so damaged, By those expulsions of Russian diplomats, by the arrest of illegals, the Kremlin might want to resort to unlikely spies like that. And uh, again, because of who this person is related to, it might be the case of the Kremlin of Vladimir Putin personally asking someone who's abroad, to do what they can to serve the motherland. And um, so uh, the way it looks like we're, it's quite likely that we're going to see more of that. And we're probably going to see more, um, uh, more spy scandals in the past, not because just suddenly Russia sent all those spies in Europe, but clearly there's, there's a momentum in Europe to clamp down on the Russian networks and to name and shame them.
1: Thank you so much, Natalia. Just to finish, um, it might be good to, well, finish on a slightly more pessimistic note, really. I mean, you write in your piece that some people do think that these exposures and arrests and these expulsions are, are actually just too late. Could you talk a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. When I when I talk to intelligence experts who've been covering the subject for twenty years, they all say that basically at the end of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall fell, and there was an idea that we will be living in one undivided Europe, and there was no like the level of threats from Russia is nowhere near as high as it was from the Soviet Union. But as we can see right now, a lot of those illegals who were caught in recent months, some of those who were caught in twenty ten, they have been cultivated for years it's not a job that you just sign up six months prior and uh, so there's suggestions that all of those years when europe and the uk were looking the other way and they were not definitely not expecting such a high level intensity of operations there are so many agents who are already embedded in society as illegals as influence agents so Mm. It may be already too late to try to eradicate this network. Obviously, there's we can see that European intelligence is trying to do that. But yeah, we're basically fucked with the consequences of a very a very less fair approach as far as Russian intelligence goes in, in the past 20 years.
1: Well, thank you so much for all of that, Natalia. And Natalia Vasileva, thank you so much for joining us. We recognize you have to run off. So thank you so much for um all of that and of course to just to our listeners we'll put that piece on in the show notes so you can go and listen and read natalia's reporting there so thank you dom natalia and francis hamish breton gordon thank you so much for waiting so patiently um Hamish, we brought you on today to talk tank tactics. Specifically, there was a video doing the rounds, which is on the Telegraph website. You've looked at it, and using your own experience, you have some thoughts, basically, about the Russian drill where it's going wrong. So, would you just, to for our listeners, just describe what the what the what this video shows us first, and then you can take us through maybe what you're taking from it?
0: Yeah, sure, absolutely, and thanks for having me on. R- really, going from the strate- geo-strategic political piece about spies right down to the very tactical level the very lowest levels and what what the video shows although before i go there i mean two two things to contextualize it i know a lot of people get quite vexed when old warriors like myself and dom start talking about tactics and and what's going wrong and perhaps you know we might be giving ideas to to the enemy i would i would really sort of gauge against that i i I was a tank commander for 24 years i Thought I was a reasonably good one, but it took me a long time to get very proficient. And when Dom and I did our basic training, it took us about six months to learn how to fight a tank and a couple of years how to fight a tank within a squadron, 14 tanks, as it were, regiment, maybe 50 tanks. So this is not something you can do overnight and is is symptomatic from a lot of what we see in the video, as in lack of training. The other issue to, to consider, I think, is is the loss of Russian tanks. Now, today, coming out of of Ukraine, the latest casualty figures for the Russians, 4,362 main battle tanks, 8,500 armored fighting vehicles, APCs, armored personnel carriers. Now, in the same vein, they also report 258,000 Russian soldiers dead. The Medusa Russian website, two weeks ago, confirmed they believe 250,000 Russian soldiers dead. My p- point here is that actually the Ukraine figures are probably pretty accurate. So 4,000 plus tanks destroyed. You look at this video and you think, I- I'm not at all surprised. So in the video, we are seeing a tank troop, three tanks if you like, with a an infantry fighting vehicle platoon two or three, I can't remember the exact figures, I think probably a T-72, the tank, the the APCs, I'm not sure, BMPs, something like that. But anyway, you, in a sense, they're trying to do combined arms operation, working together. However, they meet their end. Now, why do they meet their end? I mean, f- first of all, I think it's, it, it, for the, the very key thing is it's daylight. Now, Everything that we do in the NATO forces and all the rest, it's done at night because you're less easy to see. As the video shows, these tanks and APCs stick out like—stick out very clearly. I'm trying to think of a, a not a rude word to discuss quite how clearly they stick out. Um, so that's the number one thing. Number two, they've got no camouflage on them. If you look at some videos of, of um, British tanks, tanks in Estonia and elsewhere, you will see that they have a lot of camouflage them, mainly if they're in the woods or whatever, with with ferns on, because it it breaks up their outline and it makes them more difficult to acquire. So these tanks are undressed, if you like. You then look at how they are moving and actually the area that is shown is is a good area for tank manoeuvre. There's a lot of space. The first thing that strikes me is these tanks are very bunched. They're very close together. Why does that matter? Well, when I look through a tank site and I'm looking to fire an enemy tank, I I have a vision in my tank site up to about a 1,500 metres of about 100 metres, 150 metres laterally. I, I hope I'm explaining it, it reasonably well so that... If tanks are 100 meters apart, if I look at one, I'm probably going to see two. And certainly the way a Challenger 2 tank firing system works. I, as a commander, will lay the, the aiming mark, for want of a better description, onto one tank, press a button, the tank computer will do all the calculations, and then fire. At the same time, if I don't have to move my sight and vision, I can then put the aiming mark onto the second tank, and it'll do the same and as soon as the load is reloaded the tank it'll fire onto it so if they're really close together they're really easy to take out the second thing is the movement itself it is almost as though those two other tanks and three armored personnel carriers are tethered to the lead tank now this is probably tethered actually as it were this is probably because the tank troop leader the russian tank troop leader is probably the only person who's got a map He's probably the only person who's got GPS, sat out, for want of a better word. He's probably the only one who has a rough idea of what's going on. And and the others, if it's like a lot of the other conscripts that we've seen and replacements now, considering over 4,000 tanks have already gone, have probably got very little training, no maps, and, and they're just following around. So that's one thing. They are not using the ground. Again, they stick out like the proverbial. They're moving but in very sort of static lines, as it were, there is no, they're very predictable. What you need to be in a tank is is unpredictable and they're not using the ground to, to the best ability. And when they go static, when they stop, they're there for ages, so they become easy targets. And when you put all that together, you see why it was so, it appears so easy, and they seem to be completely unaware that there are drones looking at them all the time. I think the video, which was apparently shot near Bakhmut, suggests that these vehicles were taken out by some sort of artillery, precision artillery. It might have been Javelin, the sort of the anti-tank weapon, or something like HIMARS. And I think, God, HIMARS, you know, that's quite, quite a sophisticated weapon to take out a tank. But then a tank, a couple of million quid's worth of kit, yeah, maybe worth it. So when you put all that together, to me, it just demonstrates that these tanks are being used in a very basic way, very unpredictable. And I'm not at all surprised so many have been lost. And hopefully, uh, the Ukrainians who've had, hopefully, a a, a lot of training, we know that they have, have their issues as well. But if I was in their boots coming up against these people, I would be a lot less concerned than I was before I saw the video.
1: That's really fascinating. Thank you so much, Hamish. I'm really glad we got your thoughts on that. Could we just develop that last point, actually? You mentioned, obviously, the Ukrainians getting training. There have been lots of tank training in the UK as well. What kind of things would they, I mean, you know, would this video be kind of used as a, as a bit of a, tra- as a bit of a training tool? You can point to it and say, you know, don't do that, don't do that. What, what principles, what sort of really fundamental principles would, would have been um, given to the Ukrainians training in the UK?
0: Well, absolutely, David, the complete antithesis of what of what I've just said to you. And I'm sure in the tank school where Dom and I learned, I'm sure today they're looking at that video going, you've been learning about this for six weeks. I've been telling you all about this. Look at it. So it is all about being unpredictable. Keep your distance. I mean, when, when you're an inexperienced soldier, you know, it's very difficult to keep your distance from your buddies, as it were, be it another infantryman. Or another tank because you want that sort of collective feeling of of security, but actually, it's the converse. It's the most that it is the most difficult thing to do, and that's not what you want to. Do. It's all about, I think, operating at night. Now, yeah, I expect the night vision sights in in these Russian vehicles are, are pretty 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 old fashioned, not very good. Whereas in the Leopards and the Challengers, they're they're absolutely um, excellent. It's about I think before we've talked about this idea, what we call jockeying, when you fire, and it doesn't really matter if you're in a tank or you're an infantry soldier, if you fire too many rounds from the same place, the enemy will acquire you, they'll find you because muscle flash and all the rest of it. And that's why you need to move, which is absolutely not what these tanks are doing. Tank warfare is all about mobility. If you use a tank as a pillbox, it will get hit as a pillbox. So I expect an awful lot of this stuff is coming. And late at night, when you're you uh, you know you're, you're knackered and you don't really want to put camouflage on your tank, again, we'd be saying, it, it makes it worth it. You know, it only takes one high morse, whatever, to completely destroy these beasts. But if they're used as they're designed to be used, the manoeuvre, the mobility, they've got protection, and it's the firepower but it must be used sensibly and certainly the the way that they're depicted in that video it's it's really the billy basics have completely being ignored which is why they've all been destroyed so yeah a really interesting video and i'm sure it's been shown in in bovington and uh, across in 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 the states and everywhere else where tank man men gather and certainly funny enough i'm I've just been working with a great American tank man, Waltman Beyond, and I, we're, we're, we're going to be covering this in great detail at Al Murray and James Hollands. We have Waves fest in a couple of weeks' time, and if people want to learn the real intricacies and details, do, do come along, because we'll, we'll be covering there. So this video, we will definitely be showing how not to do it.
1: Well, thank you so much, Hamish Jabret and Gordon, for all of that. We've just got one eye on the time here, so let's go to our final
2: thoughts. Dom or Francis, would you like to start? Thanks, David. Well, firstly, just to say that following on from our conversation yesterday, updating American listeners about the event that we're doing in Washington, D.C., tickets are now available for that to subscribers. The link is in the description for this episode. My other proper final thought is following on from... Our conversation yesterday about being sanctioned by Russia and the rather surreal and humorous press release they put out in order to do so. But I wanted to end by bringing us back to those journalists who really are on the front lines, not only war correspondents, but brave journalists in Russia, and especially who are Russians themselves who, unlike us today in our office in London, face constant harassment and intimidation. And in that vein, Patrick Forbes has written a piece for The Telegraph today called The Russian Risking Everything to Stand Up to Putin. It's a biography of Dmitry Muratov, the Nobel Prize winner, of course, determined to stay in Russia and report the truth about the war. Forbes has made a documentary about him called The Price of Truth, chronicling his fight to maintain press freedom in Russia a fight involving acid attacks, death threats and a blunt refusal to give in to the Kremlin's brutal attempts to stifle dissent. As Forbes writes, it is no exaggeration to say that Muratov is putting his life on the line in this fight, a fight that is about a very different philosophy to that of his increasingly bellicose and vengeful president. As he put it to me in a rare moment of reflection, Putin thinks that death is good if it means dying for the motherland. I think that living for the motherland is the most important thing for Russia. We have a conflict between life and death, and I am not an observer. I am a participant. Muratov has lost six of his journalists since he founded his paper in 1993, murdered after their reports offended the Kremlin. A month ago, he nearly lost another one and his eyesight was permanently damaged recently when paint was thrown over him laced with acetone, the raw material used in solvents and explosives. One hears increasingly that Russia is a lost cause, but I would argue that for as long as there remain individuals like Muratov, hope is not lost. To quote Robert Kennedy, each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice... He sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from a million different centres of energy and daring those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance history proves that that is not an idealistic dream but a tangible truth and i think it's very important to hold on to that
1: thank you very much francis dom nichols would you like to go next
4: Thanks, David. I just want to go back to the news about these drone strikes that we've we've been talking about for weeks, months now. But I mean specifically the the, the alleged drone strikes against Russia. I mean, we don't know if they're drones. Let's let's, for the sake of argument, say they're drones. But we certainly don't know if they're Ukrainian. And, and I will just just briefly pause there. This thing that happened at this at the air base, the solsky Two air base, that that has wiped out one of these Tu Twenty Two backfires. Uh, so the, as I said earlier on, British defense intelligence saying today that's highly unlikely to have come from the territory of Ukraine. Just if it's a quadcopter, um, a little micro helicopter, it just simply couldn't have got that far. So are there are there people inside Russia doing this thing? And that thing on the on the Kremlin early this year, I mentioned that as well. But I, I, I just say that as context, because I'm getting slightly uncomfortable with the drone, the alleged drone attacks on civilian structures in moscow and elsewhere uh, and i wonder if if this is if it is ukraine doing it they are they are playing with very dangerous moral fire mixing all sorts of metaphors there and maybe they think if it is them then maybe they think well they are they are targeting something else and it's their defense that brought it down I, onto a civilian area i don't know if that is a defense and I wonder if they're thinking, if again, if it, if it is Ukraine, I wonder if they're thinking that they are in an existential fight. They are fighting for their lives and for the life of their country, and therefore it is worth ceding some of the moral, or not even moral high ground, but their own morality, to do that if they are targeting civilians. Now I feel very uncomfortable with that, but then I'm not fighting for my for my life. I I just put this out there because we need to have a have a think about this. They have shown the ability. Ukraine has shown the ability to use autonomous vehicles, drones, okay, autonomous vehicles, to hit shipping. They've sunk frigates and and landing craft, and all the rest of it. They've hit airfields like this Tu-22 and others. They hit Crimea regularly. They hit across the the lines of contact in in Ukraine. So, yeah, they have shown the ability to 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 very obviously target military sites, and I just wonder why they would be going certainly as far as moscow maybe it's to grab the attention you've got to, you've got to get the attention of the people maybe they've decided that they have to chip away at they do everything they can to chip away at this veneer of of security that putin has and surrounds himself with that's all he that's all he can offer to the russian people they know that they are they are not f- free but they know equally that there's vladimir there who says he can look after them and keep the enemies at the gates So I wonder if they I wonder if 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 Ukraine is behind this, I wonder if they're thinking it's worth going, going for that, showing that he can't provide that security to try and to try and uh, to try and foment some kind of revolt inside the country, which we saw in June. We saw the Wagner effort. So maybe they feel that it is worth giving up a little little bit of their humanity for this for this fight of their lives. You know, there are direct parallels, which which, Francis and many of you listening will know much better than me from the Second World War. We can talk about that. I just caution all of that. So that is how I feel at the moment, a bit uncomfortable, and you know, I'm looking at it with great intensity every day. I just caution because I would ask you to remember the um, Russian apartment block bombings of September 1999. Four apartment blocks in, in a couple of cities in Russia, the names escape me, were blown up in September 1999, over 300 killed, over 1,000 wounded. It triggered the Second Chechen War. Chechen terrorists were blamed for it, although there was there's long been suspicions that it was the Russian security services behind it. Suspicions that were voiced by Alexander Litvinenko, amongst others, long been s- suggested that that Russian security forces were behind it. Pro- uh, Putin was the prime minister at the time. He was massively boosted by this. He banged the drum for for a, do something against the Chechens, a war in the war in starting a second war, and he attained the presidency some months later. So. If you think those apartment block bombings were a deliberate act by Russia by Putin, then there's there's form here. I I, I don't know one with the other. I'm inclined to think that it that it probably was. So I I just wonder if these so two things are these drone attacks by Ukraine having decided that they need to cede some of the moral moral posi- their their moral position because they 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 are fighting the fight for their lives, or are these are these internal actions by Russia to um, to to, to show their people that they're that they're in a fight kiva probably calculating what more can russia do so they've they've got they've got nothing left but i just it, it's very dodgy ground as you can probably tell like my, my thoughts are unclear on this I, I don't just decide on something and that's my position forevermore you know these are emerging ideas and thoughts as as we get more news each day i welcome your position i'm not black and white on this i'm not saying anyone's you know, Ukraine are right or wrong to do it. I just I just throw these ideas up there and um this is what I'm thinking about and watching as these as we, we hear these
1: successive the successive strife. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Hamish, would you like the very final words today?
0: Yes, thanks very much. And um I would just like to talk about Syria and Russian attacks there. There's a very compassionate piece in the paper today by Farad al Mahou talking about a Russian Attack on a marketplace in a town in Idlib, northwest Syria, in June. A place called Juz al-Sugar, and virtually went unnoticed at the time. But um, but he and other journalists did a lot of research and found the injured people. It was a double t- double tap. Again, we've discussed, and the Russians attacked the marketplace, absolutely. No targets there at all, no legitimate targets. They talk in the piece, the juxtaposition between the blood of all the women and children mixed in with the tomatoes. A, a horrific image to look at. Nine killed in the first wave. And then as people went to help, the white helmets, people that I've worked with for many years, going in to drag people out and then getting hit again just not making the news, but reminding us this is what the Russians are doing there. They're still fighting in, they're still trying to take over Syria, no doubt because of the warm weather port and everything else. My last trip to Syria, I'll I'll be non-specific when it was a couple of years ago, it was after a similar um, type attack on a village in northwest Syria. Uh, I, I think of a little boy I met that day, two years old, lost both his legs and an arm. I wonder what's his life. The only thing I had on me I could give him, I had a $50 note, which I gave him, which I don't suppose he got much more from the sort of humanitarian aid from the UN or or, or others. And yesterday was the 10th anniversary of the massive nerve agent sarin attack. We heard earlier from the Russian sarin uh, nerve agent attack in Salisbury, my hometown, back in 2018. But on the 21st of August, 2013, 1,500 women and children mainly were killed in Ghouta from a nerve agent attack. Exactly 12 months earlier, Obama had created his red line. Now, that red line disappeared on the 21st of August, 2013, when all those people were killed. And I think that leads directly to Putin's invasion of Ukraine in February last year, the thought that, yet again, the West uh, would look away. Thank God we didn't. But let's not forget the, the dreadful things that are still happening in Syria and the fact that some people are bringing Assad back in from the cold. But the attack there, and there was another attack on Monday in Syria, it's all linked And if we learn nothing else from certainly the nerve agent attack in 2030 is if we have a red line, we've got to stick to it because there are tyrants and despots like Putin around who will take advantage as they've done. Thank you.
1: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash latest We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.